Welcome to the Open Door Church podcast. Our prayer is that you will be encountered and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and challenged by the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. Well, guys, we're quickly approaching the Christmas season. To me, it seems crazy that it can already be Christmas. Does anybody feel like that? Um, I think part of that is we haven't had a really good snow. You know, we've got it. We've had like the, the playful snows. It's like, oh, we're going to snow and not really. Uh, and I'm still waiting for that, you know, like what we had last year at Christmas Eve where it dumped for like 10 days straight and it was awesome. I'm waiting for that. I'm praying it in. All of you that do not like the snow, this is probably not the church for you. I'm just saying that is a joke. But uh, honestly, uh, it is my favorite time of the year when the snow begins to fall. Um, And with that, you know, it comes the Christmas season, the Advent season where we're celebrating the coming and the birth of Christ. So it would seem logical uh, for us to jump into the Christmas story where it begins, right? We could jump into Luke chapter 1 and 2 and begin to look at the, the proclamation of the coming Messiah. We could look at, uh, we could look at the promise that uh, Gabriel makes to uh, Mary and the, the eventual birth of Jesus. We could look at the shepherds. We could look at the manger. We could look at the story from that lens. And it would be kind of a logical flow, would it not? Um, if we kind of walked through that leading up till Christmas. But if you know me, when it comes to preaching around the holidays, I've been traditionally unconventional. <laughs> I have not uh, really stuck to the, the formula, if you will, of how you're supposed to construct Christmas or Eastmas, e- Christmas. Christ- Christmas or Eastmas. I don't know what Eastmas is. But Easter services or sermons, um, it's just not, uh, I guess, Uh, in my DNA as a pastor to be able to follow those building blocks. And so I'm sorry, uh, you guys can trade me in if you need to. Uh, But the reality of it is, uh, I feel strongly that the Lord skipped me past Luke chapter 1 and 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 to jump into really Luke chapter 4 in this Christmas season, which I don't make any apologies for. Uh, I, I believe that the Lord has us there for a reason today. Um, but if you're, if you're thinking, well, Pastor Nate, you're skipping the Christmas part of the story, and you're jumping in a little bit late, um, that isn't necessarily by my design, but I really do believe that this is a word from the Lord for you today. And uh, if anything, I know it was a word of the Lord for me personally, and uh, I feel like uh, I need to share it with you guys. Uh, I'm going to be up front. I've had a difficult couple of weeks. I mentioned some of the things that were going on downstairs, some of the frustration there, and uh, there's some other things that I don't necessarily want to get into uh, on a Sunday morning that just made for things uh, to be emotionally and physically difficult for me. And I'm not trying to dramatize it like, oh, everything is just wrong and falling apart, but um, maybe some of you are like this. When things are wrong, and you don't have great perspective, it can seem like everything is just falling apart. And I know that I have been there this last week where it was hard for me to gain my bearings. It was hard for me to really be grounded and see things from, a, from a, just a grounded perspective even. It was, uh, it was hard, to say the least. And this isn't like to play comparison games, like, oh, I had it harder than you, or you had it harder than me. Sometimes life is just hard, Amen. And uh, sometimes things are difficult, but I'm so thankful for the gracious hand of the Lord, for his merciful nature, for the support of godly friends and family. Um, I'm so thankful for my wife. I know that she's downstairs with the kids, but uh, for God just giving her insight and wisdom into saying the right things when she was supposed to say it. But if I'm being honest, I was so discouraged on Wednesday after so many little things that if I'm breaking them down and looking at them from this side of the crisis, they're not that big. They're not that like disastrous. They're not that life altering or ending or anything like that. But in the moment, it just felt like one thing after the other, after the other, after the other, that I wasn't going to be able to 
continue on. And I was frustrated and I was accusing God and just, uh, just not in a good or healthy place, emotionally, spiritually, physically even. And uh, I remember uh, we, we had to move prayer from here. We were supposed to be able to be in the building. And because of things with the floor downstairs, we shifted and moved things up to the house. And I really had just wanted to cancel prayer. And I knew that that was a red flag uh, when I didn't want to pray. That's something that is uh, very much ingrained in my nature. And uh, I, I remember being there on Wednesday afternoons, like I should just cancel prayer. I don't even want to do it anyway, kind of a deal. And recognizing uh, at least that there were alarms going off that this is not okay. This is not healthy. And uh, if there's anything that has to, that should be happening now is prayer more than anything else. And so I texted Adam and asked him, man, hey, uh, we're going to move prayer upstairs to the parsonage tonight. And I really feel like we just need to get into the presence of the Lord. And I asked if he could play the guitar. And, you know, we got a, I got my wife's guitar and we sat in the living room and there was a handful of us, maybe 10 of us that just sat in prayer and simple worship to the Lord. But can I tell you, um, it was something, I don't know if everybody experienced and encountered God the way that I did on Wednesday night, but for me, it was so important and it was so refreshing and it was so life-giving. And I reached over and I picked up my old Bible. This was the first Bible that uh, I bought as a believer. It was my first big boy Bible, if you will, that wasn't like a little kid Bible. And, um, you know, it's falling apart. I'm missing most of the Gospel of John. Um, and, uh, you know, the Gospel of Luke is just falling out. And, you know, this page from the Gospel of Luke fell out. And so as I was just sitting there reading, I turned to Luke chapter four and started reading about the temptation of Jesus and uh, really felt like the Lord began to just minister some very simple things to me. And I, I shared a little bit of uh, unscripted thought there on uh, Wednesday night. And that was really the basis for where the Lord has had me throughout the rest of this week. And that's going to be the crux of what we're talking about this morning in Luke chapter three and Luke chapter four. And uh, I really want to look at Jesus's time in the wilderness. It's found in, all, it's found in all the synoptic gospel accounts. And I want to highlight some things to help ensure that we can come out of those times of life victoriously. Um, you see, uh, I think uh, we all go through dry seasons. We all go through wilderness seasons. This is language that I often encountered when I was growing up in charismatic Pentecostal services, services and it was language used to express uh, difficult times that people were having, especially spiritually or emotionally. I remember people saying, it's just been a dry season for me. It's just been a wilderness season for me. It's just been a season of questioning and doubt and wondering and these things and never really being able to like label a, a clear definition to what they were talking about. But I, I think most of the time it hearkened back to this story in Luke chapter four, where Jesus goes out into the wilderness and he's tempted by the devil. And so when I'm talking about a wilderness season, I think a lot of people maybe define it as a season of life where things are just frustrating, dif frustratingly difficult, uh, a season where temptation is strong and unrelenting and it can feel like God is distant and you're left wondering what went wrong. Has anybody here ever had moments in their walk with Jesus that look like that? Okay, I'm hoping, I'm hoping I'm not the only one here, um, but I know for me, I've had moments where I have felt like something was just wrong. I felt like it was more difficult than it was supposed to be. I have felt like this isn't what I signed up for. I felt like, God, where are you? And I'm going to make a, a mention of that because I think um, here in a moment, but there are all these things that can just seem so off and so wrong and um, a lot of the times I've heard language be uh, kind of ascribed to those feelings as a, as a wilderness season, as a dry season. Um, and so I want to be clear here, though. There are some things about that that I think are emotional and not, not healthy to just kind of use a blanket statement as a wilderness season. But I do want to be clear with this. We will all face difficulty. Every single person on the face of the earth is tested and tried. The promise of following Jesus is not one of an easy life, but it's quite the contrary. 
We do have the promise, however, that he'll be present in the testing, in the trial, in the tribulation, in the flood. John 16, tells us that I have told you all of this so that you may have peace in me. Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the trials that would come as well. And he says this, here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows. Amen, God. Woo, Jesus, I love it when you preach. I love all the things that you have to say. Right? Jesus says that you will have many trials and sorrows. I remember there being a song where we would uh, really get excited about when I was in youth group and I was like 15 years old and the desperation band was just rocking and they were talking about uh, the promises of God and we'd do the, oh, 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 all of your promises won't let go of me. You remember that one? I knew Shelby would know. I don't know if I, I didn't have the melody or the notes right or anything like that, but and we, and we would sing that song, but then we would start to look at the scriptures and the things that Jesus said, and we would recount the, the promises of God to never leave us or forsake us, right? We, uh, we, would, we would recount things like Jeremiah 29, 11, that I know the plans I, that you have for me to prosper me, right? Yeah. And we would claim these promises of God and the promises of Jesus, but I don't think I ever heard somebody claim the promise that we would have many trials and sorrows, Right? But Jesus gives, us, gives it to us real, right? He says, you're going to have many trials. You're going to have many sorrows, but take heart because I've overcome the world. The promise was never that we would get an easy button and just float on by through life. In fact, it says that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will suffer persecution. I'm not trying to equate, you know, the difficulty that I had with laying an epoxy floor as persecution. So don't, don't take it there this morning. But the reality is there is trial, there is tribulation, there is hardship to be had because we live in a fallen world. We have not yet encountered the perfection of what has been promised in the life to come. There will be a day where there is no more sorrow. There will be a day where there is no more tears, that day is not today, though. We live in a broken world, in a fallen kingdom. Regardless of your commitment to Jesus, life is always going to be full of struggle, rich and poor. If you come from the east or you come from the west, everyone in this life suffers to some degree. Some are different than others. Some will struggle with hunger and poverty. Some will struggle with, uh, with fame and fortune, but the struggle still is real. And I'm not trying to compare one to the other, but the fact remains no one is exempt from the trying and the testing of the fires of life. We understand that, right? And I'm sorry if somebody promised you that following Jesus was going to make those trials go away. That following Jesus was somehow going to just make everything easy. That's not true. The promise is, though, that he would be with us in the trial. That he'd be with us in the fire. And that is what makes those trials sustainable, endurable. And if you want to maybe look at it from a perspective, yes, they can be easier because we're not facing it alone. I think of how some people face sicknesses like cancer or the loss of a child or, or, or these terrible tragedies that we see and wonder how could they do that without the Lord? And the reality of it is, is no one can. And I'm not here to say that it's just easy when the Lord is present in those situations either. He sympathizes with us. He understands that some things are just hard, but he didn't design them to be that way. That's a result of sin. But he's compassionate and he cares in those things. What I'm not attempting to do this morning is paint this portrait of my life that has been exceptionally hard in exchange for your pity. I, I, I'm not looking for that this morning. I'm not fishing for that. I'm not trying to be like, oh man, Pastor Nate, he just has it so hard. Uh, we should cheer him up or something like that. If you want to cheer me up, you know, I love tacos and snowboarding. I'm looking at buying a new snowmobile if you just want to throw that out there. I mean, uh, <laughs> joking. What I do want to remind you of, though, today is that you can be perfectly, hear me out on this, 
You can be perfectly in the will of God for your life and things can still be overwhelmingly difficult and trying. In fact, I think I found that to be true more often than not. When you are in the perfect will of God for your life, there is nothing more that the enemy hates and he'll try to disrupt and deter and detract you from continuing down that course. So do not expect when you're walking in the perfect, uh, perfect will of God for your life for everything just to be going right. That is a lie that has been perpetuated by the prosperity gospel that I cannot stand behind. I look, at, I look at here what we're going to look at, the, the temptation of Jesus. I look at when things go wrong in so many different people's lives. It's not always because they're in sin. It's not always because they're, they're running from God. Sometimes that happens, okay? Sometimes we get the Jonah and the Nineveh moments and, and you get swallowed by a whale for God to get your attention. But it is not a hard and fast rule that if you're facing difficulty, something's wrong. Does that make sense? You get what I'm tracking with here. I, I used to always say that opposition is a prophetic indicator of potential and that the enemy, the devil, does not go to battle where there are no spoils. This is something that, the, that my wife had to remind me of this week as I was just frustrated and ready to quit and throw in the towel and just give up on everything and want to just walk away from this project downstairs, walk away from ministry, walk away from the church and just say, God, I, I just can't do it anymore. She reminded me, that there's a reason why we're facing opposition. There's a reason why there is a struggle here, and it's because the enemy does not want to see that succeed. And this is more than just a floor. This is more than just having a nursery. This is more than just having a space to meet. There is a spiritual battle, and there is a real enemy for our souls, and he would want for nothing more than to detract and deter someone from the will of God for their life. Does that make sense? So if you're in the place where it seems like everything is fighting against you and you're, you're, you're questioning, you're wondering, should I just give up? Should I just quit? Should I change directions? I, I, I would caution you, seek wise counsel, seek the Lord, but it might just be because of the fact that there's a real enemy of your soul that does not want to see you succeed. Does that make sense, my friends, this morning? Let's look at Luke chapter four, beginning verse one. It says, then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Notice this. Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. We know Jesus was without sin, but here he was full of the Holy Spirit. And it's that same Holy Spirit that led Jesus into a dry and difficult season of testing. I think it's important to note this here. It wasn't that the devil called him out into the wilderness. It wasn't that he was in sin or disobedience that he wound up in the wilderness. It was the Holy Spirit himself that was living inside of Jesus. He was full of the Holy Spirit that also directed him into the wilderness. Guys, how many of you have heard the phrase that God will not give you more than you can handle? How many of you guys have heard that? How many of you guys can find it in scripture? That's a joke. Don't raise your hand there. Because uh, <laughs> uh, that, that is a loose interpretation of what Scripture actually says. In fact, the promise of us facing more than we can handle is all over the Bible. God never promises us that he won't give us more than what we can handle. Uh, what he does promise to do is be with us. He does promise to provide us a way of escape. That promise that is so loosely interpreted is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 13. It says, No temptation has overtaken you except such is as common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape so that you might be able to bear it. So that is not talking about Jesus isn't going to give you uh, more than you can handle. Uh, can, I, can I tell you, uh, it's already more than any of us could handle. That's why he had to come and die on a cross for us. That's why he has to give us his Holy Spirit. Um, <laughs> but there isn't this mentality or this idea that God won't give you more than you can handle. Because the promise is actually in scripture that we can't handle any of it. <laughs> So guys, today we're going to talk about temptation. We're going to talk about trial. We're going to talk about testing. 
And so I want to clarify some things as we're talking about temptation. This idea, this word temptation is used in three different senses in the Bible. And we're going to kind of talk uh, a little bit about all of them. And so I'm going to trust that you can infer what I'm talking about when I mention temptation based on context. Uh, but I want to give these definitions to you before uh, we jump into it. And so the first really idea of temptation that we find in scripture, you, you probably jump to uh, the snake in the garden, Adam and Eve, right? When this, the serpent tempts Eve to take of the fruit. And so Satan, working through our own lusts, tempts us to perform evil acts. It's a, solicit, a solicitation or enticement to evil, okay? Just, just want to clear that. That's a very generic, probably our most often thought of way of explaining temptation. Um, but there's also the idea that we can tempt God. This is a, a testing of God, if you will, in the sense of wrongly putting him to the test. This isn't like Gideon where he was asking the Lord for guidance or something like this. This would be more in line with like Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, it says that, uh, how can you put the Lord your God to the test like this? Why would you test him with this? And uh, when they were lying to the Holy Spirit um, and uh, they, they, they tried to push God's boundaries, if you will, beyond uh, what was appropriate. And then lastly, God will test and try us as well. Uh, but it's never with a solicitation or enticement to evil. That's the difference between the testing that we experience from God. Hebrews chapter 11 would tell us about how God tested Abraham. That's a good thing, um, right? That's not something that we can't accuse God of evil there because there isn't this enticement to evil. When the devil tempts us, these are all the same word that are used. That's why it can be a little confusing. When the devil tempts us, it's with this enticement to evil, and so with all that said, we're going to jump into the scriptures here. Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22 record this uh, really important moment in the scriptures. John the Baptist has been there at the Jordan River. He's been baptizing Jewish people uh, into a baptism of repentance, which was crazy and earth shattering as it is for a Jewish person to realize that there was something wrong. They needed to repent and they needed something more than what the law could provide. And this is wild man, John out in the wilderness. He's got crazy beard. He's, wear, he's eating locusts and honey and uh, just uh, looks like your local crazy man. And there's revival happening within the land, right? People are recognizing, oh, there is something wrong. I have a need for God to do something in my life. And they're getting baptized uh, into a repentance for the remission of sins. They're recognizing I am sinful and I need to get right with God. But then Jesus shows up on the scene and he gets baptized. And this is crazy because I believe we, we, we know this for a fact that Jesus was without sin. So there wasn't a, a fact that he needed to get baptized for the repentance or the remissions of sin, for the remission of sins. He did it to model something for us to do because I believe this, Jesus does not ask us to do something that he wasn't first willing himself to do. Does that make sense? He doesn't, he doesn't invite us to take up our cross and follow him because he first took up his cross, right? He doesn't invite us, uh, he doesn't command us to go into baptism if he wasn't willing to get baptized and model it for us. And I believe he doesn't invite us, like what we read in 1 Corinthians, to bear temptation, to, to find a way of escape from it um, without first demonstrating it for us here in Luke chapter 4 that we'll get to. But in Luke chapter 3, Jesus shows up on the scene to get baptized. And it says here in verse 21, when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus was also baptized. And while he prayed, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven, which said, you are my beloved son in you. I am well pleased. Guys, this is such a fascinating moment in scripture because it displays this mysterious nature of the triune God. We, see, we talk about it as the Trinity, as the Holy Trinity, where we see God the Father, 
right? Audibly speaking over God the Son, Jesus Christ, who has just got baptized, and we see God the Holy Spirit descending from heaven and infilling Jesus here. So we see all three persons of the Godhead represented here in this one verse, and it's wild, it's really cool, it's mysterious. If you think about it too long, your head might explode. Um, There's not really a great way to explain it with an analogy or, or anything like that. This is just one of those beautiful mysteries of Scripture. And so I I look at this and I can't think of a better way for Jesus to launch into ministry, right? This is like, this is the defining moment. This is when when God is is kind of peeling back the curtain and saying, this is the one. This is the guy. He's the one you've been looking for. He is my son and in him I'm well pleased. Now, if I was Jesus, this would have been the perfect time for me to launch into like some more speaking engagements, Maybe sign a book deal, go on tour, I don't know, start a podcast. Uh, This would be, I would want to capitalize on the momentum of this encounter in this moment. Would you not? I would think, man, Jesus, you need to go on a tour of Galilee, start casting out some demons, really build the PR on this thing. Jesus needs a new PR guy, if I'm looking at this from a logical perspective, right? Because instead of doing any of that, The Holy Spirit that just filled him, I'm not saying that he wasn't filled with the Holy Spirit before, but this was special, led him into the wilderness, led him into solitude, where it was just Jesus and the Holy Spirit, which is, we're going to talk about this for a moment. So we know Jesus doesn't launch into ministry right away. But he takes time in preparation. He goes to fast. He goes to pray. And he's led by the Holy Spirit into a dry and weary place. My pastor in ministry school, Pastor Jamie Montera, would often tell us that what hasn't been tested can't be trusted. We see this testing and this trying of Jesus. I think that's a really interesting sentiment He would also go on to say that the teacher never speaks during a test, right? You can't start asking for questions when you're in the middle of a test, like in school. Be like, what's the answer to like A, B, and C here? The teacher's done there, right? And so sometimes when God is silent, you might just be in the middle of a test, is what he would say when he was talking about this testing and this trying. Those little things have always kind of stuck with me. Those one-liners, what hasn't been tested can't be trusted. But the whole idea behind that is this idea of structural integrity. I was with Darby Davis, um, who's a pastor in Durango, a good friend of mine now. And we were uh, driving to uh, Cedar Ridge, Colorado a couple weeks ago. And uh, we were passing by this metal building. And he was telling me the story about how that building had been donated to his church that he used to work at. And what had happened was that there was a fire inside of this metal structure, a very small fire. It contained in one room. But the insurance decided that they were going to uh, basically condemn the building and build the guy a new building. And so this guy didn't want to see his building go to waste here. It was a perfectly fine metal structured building, probably worth $500,000 these days. Uh, and so they decided to donate it to the church that Darby worked at. And so Darby came and they looked at it and like, yeah, we'll tear it down. We'll put it up. I mean, we'll just need to make it 10 feet shorter to account for this one little uh, section that uh, is damaged and there should be no reason why we can't do that but they had an inspector in the city that liked uh, to cause uh, problems as I hear that that kind of is their role sometimes Um, it's their spiritual gift Uh, (laughs) who was concerned that the structural integrity of the building was not intact uh, anymore because of this little bit of fire damage that was nowhere near any of the trusses or anything like that. So in order to prove that these, uh, that these trusses and these big steel beams could still hold the weight of the structure and the snow load, uh, he forced them to find some way to prove to him that it would, uh, it would be structurally sound. And so they came up with these ideas and uh, they, uh, they called a couple companies, a couple crane operators to come out and they were trying to get them to, hey, could you hang your, you know, 500,000-pound crane from one of these trusses for like 20 minutes so the inspector could see and uh, show us that, you know, it's stable and it's working? 
uh, all of the crane operators laughed. It's like, uh, no, <laughs> that's not something that we do, and that sounds like a bad idea. Anyway, they eventually found out a way to, a bean farmer, I think it was, had these giant sacks that were rated for, you know, you know 10,000 pounds a piece or something like that, and they loaded them up with all of these beans and hung like 20 of them or something from one of these trusses to show that uh, it was structurally sound and that was sufficient for the inspector. This sounds like some backwoods, like made up, like science, like engineering kind of stuff that would just happen in Western Colorado, I guess. <laughs> it happened. Um, anyway, they got the building, it was great. They never got it put up. The church wound up selling it for a thousand bucks and Darby was pretty bummed. Um, anyway. Uh, <laughs> needless to say, it does illustrate my point about the, this idea of testing something for its integrity here. And I think that this is, uh, this is true with our lives. I think this is true with our faith. Um, and something that I've come to know, um, it's easy to say something, right? It's easy to say that I have faith in Jesus. But it's an entirely different thing when that faith gets put to the test. And I have to walk through something difficult. I, want to walk, I have to walk through something trying. And it's often in those trying moments and how we respond in those trying moments that our faith is tested, but it's also where it's observed by others as well. You remember a few weeks ago when I was preaching on Paul and Silas and they were praising God in the midst of a dark and damp prison cell. It said that the others were listening. And how we respond to crisis, how we respond to testing, how we respond to these moments of trial is of utmost importance because there is a world watching and they're looking to see if our faith is real. They're looking to see if our faith is genuine or if it's just a bunch of mumbo jumbo that we made up to feel better about ourselves and pat our pockets because you know that's what the church does. Let's look at Luke chapter four. I'll read verse one again. Then Jesus being filled with the Holy Spirit returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing, and afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, all this authority I will give to you and their glory for this has been delivered to me and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, get behind me, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then he brought him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here for it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. <coughs> and Jesus answered and said to him, It has been said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Now it's interesting to me. I want you to take note of this because we jumped from Jesus' baptism in John 3 to, to John 4, 1 here. But in between these two sections, Luke 3, 23 through 27, uh, the gospel writer Luke here traces the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to Adam. And uh, the other genealogies in the, in the scriptures are mentioned earlier on in like chapters 1 uh, when they're talking about uh, the genealogy of Jesus. Luke puts his here after, you know, the Christmas story. It's kind of interesting, but I think it was by intentional design that he authored it this way because I believe he's setting up a direct comparison uh, between Jesus and Adam. There are parallels with the way that Jesus was tested and the way that Adam was tempted. But Adam faced this temptation in the most favorable of circumstances, right? He's in the Garden of Eden. He's walking with God. Things are right. Things are good. Things are perfect. Uh, the best circumstances imaginable. And he failed. Jesus here, on the other hand, uh, is facing his temptation in the most severe circumstances, right? He's weak, he's weary, he's without food. It's a dry and deserted wilderness. And he's also accompanied by the devil here. I just think it's interesting to note. There's one thing that was similar between both of those accounts, though. 
was that neither one of them were alone. Just like Adam wasn't alone in the garden, like God was present there, Jesus wasn't alone in the wilderness. He was full of the Holy Spirit. I think oftentimes when I've read this story and I've heard it conveyed before, I've had this mentality that Jesus was in and out in the wilderness completely by himself. And I just want to refute that idea that he was entirely and utterly alone because scripture makes special note to tell us that he was led by the Holy Spirit also while being filled with the Holy Spirit. And I think there's something profound about recognizing the Holy Spirit as a person. Because I had said earlier, in wilderness season, it's, it can seem like God is nowhere to be found, right? I, I use that language. But I've come to recognize not so much that God is absent, right? I think of David when he talks about, if I go into the heavens, you are there, God. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there, right? We, we understand that there's no escaping God. It's never that he's absent. We know that his promise is that he is always present so it's not so much, God, where are you? Even though it can feel that way at sometimes. For me lately, it's, God, what on earth are you thinking? What on earth are you doing? Have you ever questioned God and like his way of doing things? Because, man, God, I could give you some pointers, right? Anybody ever think like that? I know that I can because I'm always just wondering like what in the world is going on and why are things working out this way? Can't you just make it happen easy, God? It doesn't seem to be the way that he likes to do things. I want to make this important note when we're talking about Jesus being full of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I think it, it's of important note that while Jesus wasn't alone, he was full of and directed by the person of the Holy Spirit. You, we, we cannot see Jesus as half God, half human. I think that's a mistake many people make. When we think about Jesus, we think about him, well, it was God the Father and Mary, and, you know, she was human, so he's half God, he's half human, he's half divine, he's half human. Um, he is fully God. He's fully divine. But he's also fully human. And I realize that equals 200%, and it can be confusing, and it's a mystery. Um, but I want you to think of it this way, that Jesus didn't utilize his I'm God card while here on the earth. I believe when we recognize his humanity and we look at him as who he is, it's not just that he is, you know, um, constantly playing the, oh, I'm Jesus card, so you know what, I can uh, heal this person. Or this is my Jesus card, so you know what, I can pray for this person. Or here's my Jesus card, so I can speak with authority on the scripture. I believe that while he was on the earth, he operated in the power of the same Holy Spirit that is promised to you and I. Because he demonstrated and modeled what it looked like for us to walk out our relationship with God on the earth. I'm not saying he ever disrobed his divinity. He ever stopped being God. I'm not trying to make any kind of heretical claims there. But I do believe the majority of the encounters that we see in scripture was not Jesus playing the I'm God card. I believe he was walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, now we can get into weird discrepancies about some of those things, so I don't want to get on like a theological rabbit trail that just ends in fruitless conversation. But what I am saying, he did a lot of what he did by the power of the Holy Spirit. And specifically here, I think when he's embracing temptation, or when he's not embracing temptation, when he's rejecting temptation, uh, it is happening not because he's Jesus and he just can't be tempted, um, I think it's happening because he's full of the Holy Spirit. He modeled what it looked like to live life by the way of the Spirit, not gratifying the lust of the flesh. Galatians 5 would tell us this, uh, for the flesh lusts against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish, but you, but you if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanliness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentiousness, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, 
I struggle with that one. Selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. I believe this is something Jesus modeled for us perfectly. This is our goal. This is our aim. And we can only do it with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And I believe that is how Jesus... Uh, Operated. I believe that is how Jesus fulfilled this uh, living without sin. And it came not just because he was God, but I believe it happened because he was living full of the Holy Spirit. It's not just possible to live in this fruit of the Spirit, but it's actually expected of us that we live in the fruit of the Spirit. In the same way, Jesus modeled baptism for us by being associated with sinners and with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, I believe he identifies and sympathizes with mankind by being tempted. He just didn't succumb to it. That's what Hebrews 4.15 would tell us, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so I want to take a close look at the temptation of Jesus, and I promise this will be fairly quick. Uh, some notes before that, though, is to be tempted is natural. To be tempted should be expected. If you're tempted, that's not a bad thing. Jesus himself was tempted here. We understand that. It's when we begin to yield and give in to temptation that becomes sin. Hmm. And I wrote a note here that makes no sense. If you guys want to hear it, it says, I mentioned earlier that go, I think it was supposed to be God, and there was supposed to be another part to that thought, but I skipped it. So I don't know what I was going to say there. It couldn't have been that important because I didn't finish it. <laughs> Jesus was on the brink of starvation, guys, right? He's been fasting 40 days. Uh, he's been without food. It has been natural for him to be hungry, right? He was naturally starving, but spiritually full. Quite the opposite of most of us, right? In our congregations today, most of us in modern Christianity, our stomachs are very full. and We don't know what it is like to be with lack, but spiritually, we're malnourished. But let's break down how Satan masterfully tries to tempt Jesus. Can I let you in on a secret? He's pretty good at it. He's pretty good. The tempter is pretty good at tempting. Um, Jesus is just better. <laughs> but his tactics that he used on Jesus are the same tactics that I believe he still uses on you and I today. Does that make sense? I don't think something changes here. I believe it is still the same nature of the enemy that we have to tempt us, to deter us, and to get us to forfeit the will of God for our lives. But the very first thing that the devil does when he attacks Jesus with temptation was he questions Jesus's identity. He really asks this questions, if you really are the son of God, right? If you really are a child of God, he begins to call into question who God says Jesus is. And I believe it still happens for you and I today. I believe the enemy would like to make, to stir up seeds of doubt. And begin to question if you really are a child of God. Does he really care about you? Are you really the beloved of the Lord? Does he really care about you the way that he says that he cares about you? It was his same tactic in the Garden of Eden when he was trying to stir up dissension between God and man. And says, well, no, God's actually withholding stuff from you because he doesn't quite love you the way that he says that, he did, that, that you do. He's not being 100% honest with you, right? Did God really say he begins to stir up these seeds of doubt, and he, he, he wants to question one's identity. If you really are the son of God, if you don't believe that you're God's child and, is act, and you're actually his beloved, why shouldn't you just quit? Why shouldn't you just throw in the towel? Why shouldn't you just yield in temptation? Why would it even be worth it? 
Secondly, I, I like this, and this is what David Guzik says about, uh, about this uh, tactic of the enemy here, this temptation. It's basically saying that since you're the Messiah, why are you so deprived? Do a little something for yourself. And it's the same way this temptation can often come to us when we're talking uh, about what we're reading here in Luke chapter 4. If you're a child of God, why are things so tough? Do something for yourself. This is one of those things that just breaks my heart. I think of Ravi Zacharias. For you that don't know who Ravi Zacharias is, he was a, just a brilliant apologist and wrote some fantastic books on the Lord, but had a scandal come out after he passed away from cancer about how for the last number of years he was uh, visiting massage parlors and was involved in all kinds of sexual misconduct and just this just devastating, disastrous stuff. But one of the things that kind of came out was saying that he would tell these girls as he would visit them and they would do all these lewd things that this is my reward for serving God. You're my reward for years of faithful service and serving the Lord. And I, I mean, it's so sad and it's so heartbreaking, but I believe that this is the same kind of mentality that this temptation can be associated with where, where, Jesus, where, where the devil here is tempting Jesus saying, if you are, prove it that you are and do something for yourself. Second thing I want to highlight here, and I'm particularly focusing in here on this first temptation of Jesus where he commands him to turn stones into bread, but it applies to all of this. The devil appeals to this real problem of Jesus. Command this stone to become bread. Jesus was hungry, right? It was a serious, legitimate need for Jesus to eat. And it would have been logical for Jesus to stay alive, would it not? He had a lot of work to do. And so to avoid continued discomfort, I don't think anybody would have really blamed Jesus. Hey, man, why don't you just make some rock? Or why don't you make some bread? Like, that's pretty cool that you can do that, right? <laughs> I've made some bread that is like a rock before. Um, it wasn't very good. But <laughs> I, want you, I want to make note of this, that Satan suggested that Jesus fulfill this legitimate need that he had, this legitimate physical need of staying alive, this desire, and he, he tempted Jesus to fulfill it in an illegitimate way. This is a way that temptation often masks itself, Right? We think about marriage, we think about love, and, and often the temptation that comes, uh, especially sexually, is this idea to fulfill a, a legitimate God-given desire in an illegitimate way. You see, Satan enticed Jesus to use the power of God for selfish purposes. This temptation to eat something inappropriate um, worked before, right? It worked on Adam, did it not? the first sinless man. So the devil attempts to do it again with Jesus, the second sinless man. But I want you to take note of this. This is, where, this is where it becomes applicable to you and I. Jesus did not respond based upon feeling or emotion here, right? I can guarantee the fact that he was very hungry. There were probably physical pains in his stomach and the logical part of Jesus's brain uh, probably wanted to do exactly what the devil suggested and say, you know what? Yeah, that's a good idea. Let's eat some bread. Let's make some bread. Hey, I'm actually God, so I could do this. Why am I suffering in this way? But rather than react practically and pragmatically and based upon a physical or even an emotional feeling, he relies on what he knows to be true and unchanging, and that is the word of God. He responds with, it is written. He responds with the very words of God out of Deuteronomy 8.3, that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives out of every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Even in his responding with scripture, he gives credit back to the fact that scripture alone is what sustains mankind. The word of God is of more benefit than physical bread alone. And I think this is interesting. This ties back into my earlier points that Jesus does not respond to the devil utilizing all of his divinity. He doesn't play the I'm Jesus card. This is, uh, this is something to, to take mental note of. Jesus and Satan are not equals. 
They're not caught up in some kind of cosmic battle. Uh, I, I believe that Jesus would straight up crush the devil in an arm wrestling match. If you remember that funny picture I put up on the screen a couple months ago where you've got like Jesus that's ripped with like tattoos and you got Satan with red horns and they're like crushed in this arm wrestling match and it's like uh, scroll down if you love me or whatnot or repost and it's just silly Facebook, MySpace stuff. I don't know. MySpace, wow, did I date myself there? That hasn't been out for a while. Um, <laughs> you guys remember that point. They're not equals. And that's how I know that Jesus isn't responding to Satan here with all of his divinity. I believe he's doing and he's responding like scripture instructs us, that he's providing a way of escape, that he might be able to bear temptation, to stand up under it by way of the Holy Spirit. He's modeling it for you and I, because guess what? We don't get to play just the God card. You know, I'm not Jesus. Like there are some crazy people out there making those claims and whatnot. Um, I am not Satan's equal, but filled with the power of the Holy Spirit is an entirely different story. You see, Jesus used scripture to battle Satan's temptation, not some elaborate spiritual process or power that's inaccessible to us. I believe this is very real to us, that he was modeling it for you and I. Jesus fought this battle as a spirit-filled, word-of-God-filled man, and he drew on no divine resources that are unavailable to us. Guys, I pulled that straight out of a commentary that I was reading when I was studying this, but I, I felt like I could not phrase it any better that Jesus was prepared to fight this battle as a spirit-filled, word-of-God-filled man. He drew on no divine resources that are unavailable to you or I because he was modeling how we should respond to temptation as well. The temptation presented to Jesus was one to take the easy way out. If you continue on, and when he says, well, if you just bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world, right? Uh, you know, uh, lots going on there and there, but I believe if you boiled it down to the crux of what the devil was trying to offer Jesus was a way for him to have the kingdoms of this world uh, without going to the cross, to bypass suffering, to bypass the difficult road, which had to be tempting to Jesus, knowing what was coming for him knowing what he was expected to do on the cross. You see, the temptation for me is not to wake up one morning and walk out on my family. It's not to go find a better family. It's not to just go start doing drugs and throw my life away. It never starts that way, does it? You have friends that have kind of walked away from the Lord and have seen their families fall apart. It just doesn't wake up one morning and they're like, you know what? I really just want to be addicted to meth today, right? Typically doesn't happen like that overnight. Can I tell you what the temptation for me to be is? It's just to be normal. I believe that the temptation for a lot of people is to just be ordinary, to not be so excited about this Jesus guy. I think the temptation for me is to be frustrated at frustrating things. I want to, to respond without bursts of wrath when people don't do their jobs. I want to be justified in my frustration. That's normal. I want to live naturally. But we're called to live supernaturally empowered. Can I tell you, I want to be justified in, in, in the lusts of my flesh. I want to begin given over to just being normal, being human. But God didn't call us to be normal. He didn't call us to be human. He didn't die on a cross and give us his promised Holy Spirit so that you could just walk around and live normally. Give us his spirit so that we could be different, so that we could be a peculiar people, so that I could respond in gentleness when it doesn't make sense. So I can walk with the peace of the Lord where, 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 where it's uncomprehensible. See, there's this temptation for me to just 
quit pursuing the call of God upon my life some days. Where it makes sense to me is, God, I just want to be with my family. And it would, it would seem like it would just be easier for me to walk away from all of this. To be content with being saved, content with just going to church and reading my Bible and being a Christian. But, man, construction stuff is not what I signed up for. When I went to Bible college, they did not teach us how to do plumbing. That's not true, actually. I, we did plumb stuff in Bible college, but whatever. <laughs> you guys get my sentiment there. But there's something to be said of perseverance. There's something to be said of not throwing in the towel. Not just when it comes to you know, me throwing a dramatizing all the stuff that happened this last week. When it comes to marriages and relationships, when it comes to just our walk with the Lord, there's a perseverance that is sacred, that is necessary. James 1.12 says this, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. I want to stand before God one day and have him say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Not that I was halfway there. Not that I almost made it. I, I want to see through the call of God upon my life to the very end. It reminds me of what Jesus ends each of his letters to the church in the book of Revelations with. In Revelation 2 and 3, there's seven letters and each one responds and ends with this promise to the one who endures, to the one who perseveres, depending on what translation you're reading. But in the New King James, it says, to the one who overcomes. He'll give the right to eat from the tree of life, to not be hurt by the second death, to be given a new name, to be given power, to, be, uh, to not have their name blotted out of the book of life, to sit on his throne with him in glory. These wonderful promises of scripture. So how does this happen? How do, we, how do we persevere till the end? I talked about we need to be spirit filled. We need to be filled with the word of God. I think these two things work synonymous, synchronous. I'm trying to make up a word there. They work together in sync. Synonymous? No, they're not, they're not interchangeable. That's not what I'm trying to say. They work together. Synergy. Synergy is the word I'm looking for there. <laughs> I think a lot of the times people can be, you know, Bible people, and they're not really into the Holy Spirit so much. And they can be, and then, and then you kind of got the other end of the, the spectrum where they're really into the Holy Spirit, but they're not real big Bible people. And we can't, we can't have that pendulum swing. They, they're married together. I believe it's impossible to be a Holy Spirit person without being a Bible person. I believe it's impossible to be serious about the Word of God and not be a Holy Spirit person. Does that make sense? And Jesus models that marriage perfectly, and we need them both equally. We need what God has already said and what he's actively doing in order to be uh, able to stand against the trickery and the temptation and the, the snares of the devil. But Revelation 12, 11 tells us, gives us even greater insight to that. On top of those things, we see this. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives even unto death. This here is the key. I want to love Jesus more than I love my own. I want to choose Jesus above every comfort and convenience. I want it to be said of me that I am more concerned about what Jesus wants than the comforts of my own life. When I was in ministry school, we, we printed up these t-shirts and they said, dead men have no rights. I think that was actually why I was a youth pastor here. They had gravestones on them. It's something that we would say all the time because we were talking about if we are dead in Christ, we understand that all of our passions, all of our desires, all of our rights passed away when we were crucified with Christ. 
Now it's no longer about what I want. It's no longer about what I was entitled to. It's no longer about no longer about what I deem to be right or wrong. But it's about what he says and what he desires and what he wants for my life. It's this mentality of John the Baptist that I must decrease, that he might increase. And when we have that perspective, all of a sudden it doesn't matter about a floor. how we respond and how we interact with people, how we present the gospel, the decisions and the choices that we make, the way that we live our life completely changes when we don't love our life, not even to the point of death, more than we love Jesus. Friends, I want to end this service this morning by taking of the Lord's Supper together. We have the elements on either side of the room here. We have the cup and the bread that I want to take together right before we pray. Um, And so I'm going to invite you at this moment in time. We don't have music. It's not going to be fancy or anything like that. Um, I want to keep this a solemn moment as we think about the sacrifice of the Lord. Think of Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane when he's praying to the Lord. He asks that this cup might pass from him. Speaking of the trial that he was about to endure. The pain that he would suffer. The cross that he would carry. The death that he would have. He asked that this cup might be taken from him. Shows me the humanity of Jesus here. Wanting to do what God has asked. Wanting to be in the will of God for his life. But recognizing that it's hard. Recognizing that it's difficult. Recognizing that it's not an easy thing. That the Lord's asking of him. with great maturity coming by way of the Holy Spirit Jesus says not my will but yours be done we know that he winds up not loving his life more than he wants to see the will of the Lord accomplished so he willingly and joyfully I say joyfully because it says for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and scorned its shame. I think that's crazy. Even in the midst of great trial and hardship, you can still find joy in knowing that you are in the will of the Lord. As we take of this bread this morning, we remember the body of Jesus that was given for you and I the suffering that he went through for you and I, the suffering that he didn't yield to because he knew that it was going to be worth it in the end. Friends, let's take the bread together.
we think of the cup. We think of God's own blood that was spilled out as a ransom for our souls. As a result, we get to be with him where he is. I want you to understand this. You are that joy that was set before him. You are that prize that he went to the cross for. You are what made it worthwhile because you were the will of God for Christ Jesus that you would be with him. God, it says that he desires that all would come to repentance, that none would perish. So it's for this reason that he died. So as we think of the cup this morning, we see, think of the sacrifice that Jesus made. We do so with gratitude that we're promised relationship with him. Let's take of the cup, friends. Jesus, we bless you. We love you. We need your help. We need your help. In Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, to reiterate, I think to successfully navigate the trickery and the temptation of the enemy, we need to be full of the Holy Spirit. That comes by spending time with him. We need to be people of the word. We need to know this book. We need to know what he's already said so we can decipher and we can discern what he's actively saying. This needs to be in our life. And I, wanna, I just want to say that you know, those are two things that we practice regularly here at Open Door Church. On Tuesday nights, guys, we are in the Word. We're finishing the book of Jeremiah this week. Come join us. We're still going to eat. It's going to be fun. Adam's cooking dinner. It's going to be delicious. It's going to be great. Um, and it'll be our last one for the rest of the year. But we're also people of prayer. And I believe there's no better place to get to know the person of the Holy Spirit than in the place of prayer. Obviously, private prayer is important, but I remember... My very first service as a Christian, after giving my life to the Lord, was a prayer meeting. And I fell in love with the Holy Spirit there. And I think that those are so important for you and I to prioritize as believers. Um, and just want to encourage you in that. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you want to check out more of our messages, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. Just search Open Door Pagosa. Our ministry is made possible by the faithful generosity of people just like you. If you were blessed by this morning's message and want to partner with what the Lord is doing in Pagosa Springs, find us at opendoorpagosa.com. Here you can give and stay connected with everything we are doing as a church.